Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. I'm Michelle Dunbar. Enjoy listening and watching as addiction experts Mark Sheeran and I cover controversial as well as helpful topics on addiction, how to move past it, and other related subjects. As two of the co-founders of the Freedom Model, Mark and I will give you a completely new perspective on the topics that matter to you. We will take to task the Recovery Society's lies and misinformation and replace them with facts, research, and the methods to move on from addiction struggles without 12-step meetings, rehabs, and the shackles of endless recovery. Let's escape the treatment and recovery trap together and learn to be free. Welcome to the truth. It's time for you and those you love to step off the addiction roller coaster for good and learn a solution that works. It's called Move Past Addiction Masterclass, and it's a free one hour live online class where you'll hear new and empowering information about how to solve addiction for good without steps, meetings, rehabs, or being labeled for life. If you're struggling or you love someone who is, then this masterclass is for you. To enroll in this free one-hour class, click the link provided or go to thefreedommodel.org and choose the date and time that works for you. See you at the masterclass. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Addiction Solution. I'm Michelle Dunbar. And I'm Mark Sheeran. And we are the authors, the co-authors of The Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Trap, this book, and Freedom Model for the Family. And our other co-author is Stephen Slate. Yes, it is our 200th episode. So we have a special little topic to cover today. And that is we're going to talk all about the history of the Freedom Model, how this all began, how we met um, and started this whole process. Now, I know we've we've talked about it. We talked about it a little bit in our master class, um, and we've talked about it at bits and pieces in other podcasts, but I don't think we've ever gone through like a full kind of anthology. Yeah. So we're going to kind of do a timeline. I didn't write it down because it's all in my head, but, <laughs> um, and we're going to tell some stories along the way. And, um, some of this, uh, if you guys, there are people that literally binge watch our stuff and you've heard a lot of these pieces in different places, but we're going to bring in some new, new, um, historical facts, you know? And, uh, so, so the, obviously Michelle and I both come from AA families and you all know that. Um, and we grew up from our first memories, basically my, I did, I think hers might be a little bit later when her dad got sober later, but my mother had already been an AA when I was born. I think she actually, I think I was like one year old when she got right, started. Right. Um, ironically, she drank through 12 pregnancies and we all kind of turned out all right, you know? <laughs> Just pounding, pounding the beers. Not that uh, we'd recommend that. No, <laughs> no. I just sort of strange, strange fact. Um, so, uh, yeah, grew up, grew up in that. And I had uh, just an odd upbringing. My mother basically uh, got involved in AA and then had an affair in AA and then left uh, the family when I was seven and moved on with her life. Um, and that was my first foray into watching what treatment does to families, how it splits you apart. Yeah. And being the youngest of 12 kids and all, a bunch of step brothers and sisters, I, I got to watch as treatment and therapies, quote unquote, treatment and therapies, destroyed life. And uh, they do that by dividing and conquering because there's a hierarchy of power involved in those in those models and even with therapists there was a we, my mom saw this therapist bob you know and she would always say do you want to see bob and i'm like fuck no i don't want to see that dude <laughs> i basically destroyed my family thank you no was bob an aa no no but i swear to god he was so invested in my mother oh uh, he was that, in love with your mother i i don't know i don't know i never met the dude I didn't want to. She was constantly bugging me to see him because I was a disturbed kid. You know, she'd get me on the weekends and I I had all kinds of problems. But uh, his mother was super charming. She was charming. 
Yeah, she was cool, but she wasn't very cool to us kids. No. Well, same uh, with, yeah, you know, same with my dad. Yeah. So super, so, super charismatic so, people. So that's the background of my family. I mean, I don't want to, everybody's heard my story, so I don't want to belabor it. Um, eventually I, I drank and drugged, obviously I, I did that with a tremendous amount of guilt because I was taught that I'd be an alcoholic. The whole narrative existed in my, in my life that you're an alcoholic, it's genetic. And, and my mother was so screwed up from this that our whole existence was about her guilt of leaving the yeah. family. And I couldn't stand being around her after a while. I, this, I know that sounds really harsh, but when a, when a mother leaves, feels guilty about leaving and then imposes her tears and guilt on a child constantly. And that's the the topic that gets brought up in every conversation. After a while, you learn to hate your mother because it's a type of emotional stealing, you know, because as a kid, you want your mom just to be secure and and happy. And well, that's kind of know. a little bit too of a a little bit of a product of AA because because, you know, the whole amends process is 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 predicated on you know, wanting to get uh, something from it, right? You want to get, you want to get approval from everybody. See, I was a drunk and I, I, I didn't do good things, but I needed to get my life together. Oh, yeah. So you need to all understand that this is what I needed to do for me. Yeah. And, and you need to all accept that. Now I'm making amends to you, but it's, but it's so superficial and, and not, it's not, done for the right reasons. Yeah. So her life was horribly not fulfilling for her. Yeah. So, so there was this constant malaise of depression and there was an anger too. my mother. It got to a point where it, it was pretty obvious that she didn't want children. Mm. And, you know, I don't know what it was like for my older brothers and sisters because they were so much older than us. The, what, what we called the, the little four, right? The the youngest. Yeah. And there was a kind of a gap. And then the first eight, I think they had a completely different upbringing than we did. Ours was in a broken home. The first eight didn't right. have that. So, right. so I think they have a very different view, but my mother was broken by this point. I mean, it, she was just not a kind woman to us and she was totally disinterested in, in, in us. But the reason I tell this is because Michelle has a similar experience. It's different, but it's similar, but it sets the stage for the freedom model because I learned how to be feel guilty and feel like I was the cause of my mother's unhappiness constantly. And that makes you ripe for AA that this whole idea that I'm not enough, that I'm spiritually not fit, that I need to give until it hurts. Mm, if I want to get sober, yep. I mean, it set the stage for this, this total inferiority complex, this feeling that I don't belong anywhere else. Other kids are playing baseball. I'm going to rehabs. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just so fucking bizarre. My whole upbringing was because I was in a cult. My family was immersed in a cult just, just because of this influence constantly in our life. And, uh, and it made for a really confusing upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm going to preface this because this is, um, uh, very popular on social media. Now we're, we're Gen X kids. Okay. So, and we're older Gen X. Um, I was born in 68. He was born in 70. So, um, so we were raised in the seventies and eighties and both his mom and my dad went to AA in the seventies when AA was exploding. Yeah. Like yeah. the it, whole self-help movement. Was yeah. Just it was huge. And you come out of the sixties where everybody was, was partying and having a great time. And then they all kind of as they were kind of aging out of it, um, AA was kind of taking hold and they all, I think a lot of them ended up there yeah, it, thinking that's yeah. what they needed. Yeah. Um, and so, so for me, I was nine, I was eight, nine years old when, and you've all heard that when my father went from being this honest to God, he was super charming and charismatic and fun. Um, he was a party guy. Yeah. And he loved parties. He loved, he's to, like he loved parties right up until recently. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he did. Um, and, and he was very social. He was, uh, uh, involved in local politics. People loved him. And, and so 
like, but we had, I mean, there was problems. I'm not going to lie. There was problems. And, and I mistakenly thought the problems cause, cause retrospect. Right. So we were kind of told the problems were because he was a drinker. Like the, the fact that he would have temper tantrums and be abusive mm. and violent at times what was always seemed to be tied to the fact that he was a heavy substance user. But you know what happened? He went to AA, he quit drinking, he became a guru in short order and the violence and the temper tantrums didn't stop. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. It didn't. And, and Jerry was always, he's brilliant, but he's also was difficult to work with. Yeah. Troubled. Because troubled that way. And here's, so that gets us to the next stage. So Michelle and I both end up in AA. We don't have to go through the drunk log. You've all heard it. Yeah. You've all heard you, our, you, you, our antics. Yeah. We drank, drank and drugged for all through our teens and we're all screwed up. But, but I do want to say one thing though, before that, there was some things that happened and I, I talk about this in the masterclass. So if you've been to the masterclass, um, you can plug your ears, I suppose, but, but, but there was a couple things that happened that were made my dad question, seriously question 12 step program, yep. seriously question AA and what he had been doing up until the, the point he started to question it. I think he genuinely gave AA credit for the fact that he quit drinking. Yeah. And, yep. um, and, and now he wasn't, he became a guru. We ended up moving away when we came back, he was kind of dabbling with AA meetings, but he had gotten on with his life for the most part, but he's still like a lot of people do, even that leave AA and don't go to meetings. He still gave AA credit for the fact that he wasn't drinking anymore, yeah. even though he wasn't going all the time. Um, but here's a couple things that happened. My, um, my grandfather, uh, who had been in and out of treatment programs, VA hospitals, in and out of AA. He had put at one point um, three or four years sober together when he lived with us because that was a condition of him living with us. Um, and then when we moved away, he went back to drinking and he died in 1986 in withdrawal from alcohol by himself because the family, everybody had implemented tough love Right. And so he was all alone. He believed he would die an alcoholic. And that's exactly what happened to him. Mm -hmm. He died from alcohol. He had no other health issues other than the heavy drinking. And so that happened. That was, that was a, a, a that kind of rocked my dad's world a bit. Um, and then, and especially the way that he died, it was, it was truly sad and tragic. And my grandfather was an amazing kind, wonderful man. He was not a violent drunk, nothing like that. He was just sad. He was just, you know, he was, he was somewhat broken from being in France in World War II. You know, he had legitimate emotional problems. Um, but so that happened. And then my mother left my father and like left him with prejudice. She was like, I don't want anything from you. I'm done and left. The marriage and and those two things I think shook my dad's world enough to make him realize, huh, maybe maybe AA doesn't work. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe 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 this whole maybe there's something seriously wrong with it. Right, right, and and that's when I met him, and then I met Michelle a couple months later, um, and I had gone to treatment and all that. Now, so I want to jump to I've met Jer. Uh, and what changed me was he used the word normal, that I was a normal kid. I was 19 years old at the time and I looked like I was 12. I looked very young. And, um, but I had experienced a lot of things in life that a lot of children don't experience. I'd been to third world countries. I had traveled quite a bit. I had, uh, I had lived on my own since I was seven years old without parents in a different building than my father. Um, so I was pretty worldly for a young guy which and I'd been to college and I had worked in different states, just all this kind of wild life. And, and so I, I kind of got once, once I was told that I was just this normal screwed up kid, right. But I was normal and that the disease idea really didn't fit. Um, and I don't think we certainly Jerry didn't articulate any of that to me, but he was figuring it out 
for a couple of years, like Michelle said, basically from his father's death in 86. So this was 89. And in that three years, he had figured out that powerlessness was bullshit, that the, the term alcoholism was nonsense, that addiction really didn't exist, that pe anybody could moderate. He had that all in the background, but he didn't talk about it publicly except for nobody's powerless and they move past this problem. And he kept saying that and he was going to AA and saying that. And so I hooked up with him and became his research assistant. And it just, it just made sense. We were, we were, um, partners in business and not in a relationship or anything like that, just partners in business. And, and I was his research assistant. He was my mentor, my business mentor, and it worked. I mean, we, we were figuring things out at a rapid pace. Michelle came on board for a period of, I don't know. Well, it was kind of funny because, um, well, I, I, you know, dad did do what Mark, Mark moved in and moved. Like my dad had this big house by himself because my mother had left. Right. And I was homeless. At and the time. he was homeless. And so my dad, I didn't know this at the time, but he had gone back to meetings to do research. And that's when he met Mark and he met some other people yeah, and specifically dudes, because men stay with the men, work with the men, and women work with the women in A, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. Eventually, the women came. But, but you were the first. I, but no, it was just, but nobody, the women didn't live there with you Right, guys. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so he allowed, you know, uh, some dudes to come and stay at the, the big house with him and they helped him take care of the the grounds and the house yeah, and it was stuff. like a boarding them, house yeah it was like a boarding house one of them was also my husband which is how i met him yeah. um but mark was the only one there at the time and so i i have to tell this story so my sister and i go there and i'm this is i'm still drinking still partying and i wouldn't even call it partying anymore i was mostly drinking by myself um, but I was working and, and I had failed out of college. And so I was living with my mom and my sister and I went to my dad's to, um, to get our Christmas present. We have a Christmas present every year. He give us some money and I wanted to go get my money. And so Kristen and I went there, Kristen's my sister and, um, and my, they, they kind of like. And, and I think you were like somewhere in the house at the time. I don't know if you heard this exchange, but they kind of did an intervention with me. I've talked about this before where all of a sudden I'm ambushed and my sister starts, they start talking to me about my, my heavy substance use. My sister had spent some time, week, couple weekends with me at college when I was at college. And so she's telling him all, I mean, the most embarrassing stuff. I mean, all about my promiscuity and about the way I'm behaving and how heavily I'm drinking and the fact, I think she's even using a lot of drugs. Like, I mean, it was all, and, and I instantly, you know, what does that do that puts you on such a defensive? I'm horribly humiliated. And, um, and so I just, I just told everybody to fuck off and I left and I had brought my sister there. So I don't know how she got home that day, but I did not bring her back to my mother's house. Um, I went and where did I go? I probably went to the bar and I probably got drunk. Um, and I was from that point forward for the next six months, I did nothing but drink and drink and drink morning till night, morning till night, morning till night. I was like, okay, all right. If I'm an alcoholic, I'm going to be an alcoholic. I'm going to do this like for real. And, um, and so, so I'm always, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of interventions because of this, um, because I had two people that I trusted and loved and it felt like they attacked me unprovoked. And, um, I mean, it was, it was just horrendous, but anyway, I had to tell that story. So that's, that started kind of my progression into the depths and, um, and then I kind of came out on the other side, quit drinking on my own, and then went to my father to ask what I should do. Right. So that was that summer. And then uh, by that point, there was a whole crew of us yeah. from AA because Jer and I would go to meetings and say things like, you know, you could get well and you're yeah. not powerless. Well, you you're not, you're not an alcoholic. Yeah. And, and people were attracted to that. And AA did at that like time it. did not like that. And they, um they came after us and uh, said really horrible things about us, but it didn't seem to matter because people, 
people's positive drive, they want solutions. So we had something, we had a seed that ended up being very popular and very um, uh, empowering to people. And that was that they're, they're not fucked for life. Right. And so this whole recovery thing and your, your, your dad was really cool because, you know, we would, we would skip meetings, which was a taboo and we would uh, go to concerts and the, all the guys would do things, you know? And yeah, we, we built like a, a social network for real. And yeah, not, not wrapped around the whole apparatus of AA, but still integrated into it. Yeah. But kind of counterculture. And we became known as the young guns. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then we started our own meetings and did that whole thing. Then, um, it became very popular. Uh, it blew up into 38 men and women and in and out of the Baldwin house, we called it the Baldwin house, which is where the name Baldwin research came from. Yeah. It was on Baldwin road. That was the, the house I was a teenager in. Yep. So uh, it's, uh, that, that house was basically almost like a flop house because Jer said there will be no rules. We're just going to observe <sighs> people. We're going to give them one message that they can move on with their lives and we will observe. And it was a fucking madhouse. Um, but very positive things happened there. And uh, well, look at if people changed. What happened was, and, and you can see this, this research, um, the Baldwin Research Project of 1990 is available on yeah. baldwinresearch.com yeah. where he studied, I think it was like 39 people 30, total. Yeah, and he followed us for a whole year. We didn't know it was a, it was an observational study and you, we really didn't know what was going on. And one group of people, one, and we were all under the age of 30 years old and because that demographic that goes to AA does the worst, like the absolute worst. If you look at, um, people under the age of 30 years old that get exposed to AA, uh, the data is, is abysmal. Okay. They have yeah, really much bad. higher rates of overdose and death. They have much higher rates of mental health issues. They have, they're, they're the tenure of their substance use problems is longer. I mean, planting a seed in someone who's 18 years old, that they're forever diseased and powerless is a disaster. Okay. There is, there's absolutely no data that supports it's a good thing. So, so what happened was, is he, he had these, th these two groups that he was studying and one group got the message from him. You're not diseased. You're not powerless. You can be okay. You can actually solve this problem and get on with your life. Right. The other group got the traditional message, um, that you're powerless, you're diseased. You're going to have to come to these meetings forever. Um, this you're, you're always going to struggle, um, and, and so the results were remarkable, right? The group that I was in, thank God that got the message and Mark was in that we could be okay. Um, I, what was in it? Like 75% yeah. were still, still abstinent at the end of one year. I mean, it 75%. Yeah. It was crazy high. And, and then the other group zero. Yeah. The end of the one year zero were still abstinent. Yeah. It was bad. So, it's really bad. Yeah. So just that one message, that's how the freedom model started. And what's crazy about it is it was a confused message. And I'll it tell was. you why we were confused because when I met Jer, he was on this kick of really moving away from AA, but the only place he could find study subjects at, yes. is within AA. So he would go to AA. He would, he wouldn't, recruit he would simply say hey did you know you can get past this all this other shit is nonsense mm -hmm. and then that would attract people and a lot of them were transient like me homeless and that kind of thing and then they would move into the baldwin house with all kinds of different motives right some for three hots in a cot and but but regardless we talked about this constantly but then the research switched around because we all came out of AA. So we were trying to negotiate. If you read the Baldwin Research Project in 1990, which is in baldwinresearch.com on that website, it's an old report. If you look at that, we kind of went a little bit backwards because we were saying, wait a minute. I think that's what Bill Wilson was trying to say back in the early right. 30s or, or in the mid 30s. Bill like, wasn't saying that we were interjecting our own ideas into Bill Wilson. So the next two years was me figuring out, holy shit, Bill was crazy. And 
we've kind of been developing our own model without realizing it mixed with AA because we're going to AA. And so it was this wicked, confused time. Oh God, it was, it was, you know, on the one hand, we're saying you can move past this, but on the other hand, we're, we're still going to meetings. meetings and, we're in the we're saying that service work is important. That yes. surrender is important. Oh yeah. Like there was, there was things we were like, does, do we still need this? Do we still need this? And so if you read our research um, on baldwinresearch.com, there's a whole anthology of everything. Yeah, it's a 74 page anthology. It's the last thing Jared wrote before he retired. Yeah. And you'll see that how the more that we studied and not just studied and read other people's work, but the more that we observed the people we were helping and tested out our theories, mm -hmm. the more we learned and the further away from the original AA message we got. And the closer we got to the very beginning where Jer was just coming up with his own ideas about empowerment. It was really weird. It was a 12-year span, what Michelle's talking about. So it starts with Jer leaving AA, getting his shit together, this little pocket of time that Michelle described where he left AA. And then when Marilyn left and when his father died and all this, he starts getting back integrated into AA because that's what you did. And he had decided, well, that's where I'm going to study people. Yes. Now this, because where else are you going to find drunks, right? To, to deal with. Well, you could find them anywhere. He could have done something different, but we didn't know that at the time. I was basically this, I think the second or third person, there was two other people ahead of me um, th that came to the house. And then I was the first one to move in. Once that happened, Jer kind of reintegrated back into AA. Yes. And from that point, that was 1990. Yep. Um, all the way till about 2001, 2002 was a, and this is where was a walking out of AA. But what I want to say is this is where we did something that nobody in the world has ever done. That's right. And that is I put my life on hold. Jer put his life on hold. Michelle didn't put her life on hold, but did basically also put her life on hold. And, and her, her kids had to practically live at the retreat and stuff. I mean, it was so crazy, but our careers as researchers really blew up because we spent every single day yep. living either at the Baldwin house. Then there was an apartment called washout road where we wrote our first reports a little span of time, about a year where we, me and Jay were basically homeless and penniless. And then we they got, had my car. I yeah. gave them my car to drive. That's right. <laughs> and then we, and I walked to work <laughs> and then we started the first retreat in Hageman. Yeah. Which I go by every day now yep. on my way back from work. Um, and why don't you tell a little bit about walking into the retreat? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because the, so this is 1992. So 1991. Wasn't it 90? No, it was 92, February 92. February I 92. Actually, I incorporated Baldwin Research Incorporated, the not-for-profit, got the not-for-profit not status. Oh, that's right. That February. That's right. That's right. And then a week later, we moved into Hageman. Oh, my gosh. So so they were so excited. They had found this house in Hageman, and it was a it was a an old retirement home. Like it was a, like a nursing home. It had been a nursing home, but it had closed when the regulations changed. And so it, it closed like 10 years earlier. So it was this dilapidated old house in Hageman, New York. It was and the Hegemans had built it. So it was the original house in yeah, this little it's, town. It's called the Pauling Mansion. Yes. Yeah. And, and it was I mean, it was creepy. It was absolutely big creepy. Victorian beat up old Victorian. It was. And so the moment you walk in, I don't know if you believe in these things, but the moment you walk in and it had a weird vibe to it, it just a strange vibe. But the main room that you walk into from the side is we had this, had these cherry wood walls, right? Yeah. I mean, it was very majestic and a big fireplace and had a couple different libraries. I mean, it was a, it was a really beautiful structure like it still is yeah. yeah and um yeah. but it was dilapidated and there was when you went upstairs i mean there was holes in the roof mm -hmm. and it was it was february so it was cold and they're like moving in to this place and i'm thinking a you're gonna freeze to death and b 
this place is creepy and haunted. I mean, I, there was a closet that was filled with bat droppings. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember? Like, obviously, because yeah. he had to clean it out. Yeah. Um, I mean, they they just had, and my father at the time was just a little younger than we are now. Um, so he was in his late 40s. Yeah, he's 50. Oh, he's just, turned just 50. turning 50 in right. 92. He was just turning 50. And I think about that now and how much energy he needed to have to to move into this and say, we're going to change the world starting here. Well, what was funny was I don't think he saw that when we first went through, he made me make the decision. He said, do you want to do this? Because I think years My later. were there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'll, tell, I'll tell you. No, that's good. <laughs> so uh, you have to understand we were we were bankrupt. Yeah, we, we had, didn't have any money. We had no, Jer had a, a you know. He a, had a retirement a, from but, GE. But, but he had and... a, uh, uh, a reputation and a background in research. I had nothing. I was just 20. And at that point, 21, 22 years old. And so it was, it was insane. I mean, the whole thing was completely nuts. And I remember he asked me, do you want to do this? Is this the house? And I said, yeah. And I, it looked like every halfway house I had ever been in. It so, did. so what was ironic was I was recreating my past. I was comfortable in this place. I was comfortable because I lived totally transient since I was a child. Mm. I grew up basically in a drug house, you know, with no parents. And, and so for me, the answer was, yeah, yeah. And, and I remember him later telling me, holy shit, man, we got a lot of work to do. I can't believe you picked this, you know, <laughs> but I guess beggars couldn't be choosers because we, well, you, you got know, a good deal on it. It seemed we had eight months for free. Yeah. Jerry put it. It was crazy how it all happened, but eight months for free. And then they would pack up the lease payments at the end of eight months. And we were allowed to change anything we wanted to change The the owners were totally willing to work with us in one yeah. conversation. And so we moved in that night. We literally talked to the lady. She was out in front of the, Jerry had this, this business plan that he had whipped off. He handed it to her. We didn't even know where the place was. We just drove up, handed it this lady, this thing. And she said, yes. And that night we packed our shit at washout road and we're in. Oh my God. I mean, it was totally insane. That totally is insane. insane. And then the walk out of AA began. That was, and that's a whole different thing, but I, I've been, you have you. to talk about the movies. Oh, so the very first <laughs> night I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I, 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 you know, right. It's not like they had, I mean, like, this is the early nineties. So no internet. They had no cell phones, no, no cell cable. Phones. They really didn't have any contact with the outside world. In like, this dank, dark house, I, I basically had no friends haunted. but Jer. And <laughs> and then I said, well, and they left, the uh, previous owners left a TV, a VCR, and two movies. And the movies were Field of Dreams, Build It and They Will Come, and The Money Pit. And The Money Pit. And the house ended up being The Money Pit. But and also I, I, I watched those two movies because I was bored. And then I got up and I said, huh. And I started taking all the safety railings off. And Jer goes, comes downstairs. He's kind of working on things, getting an office ready. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to start. It's the money pit. We're going to just. We're going to start renovating. Start renovating. And he's like, huh, I'm impressed. And then he went back upstairs and I took all the railings. I've had a pile of railings out in the front yard and, uh, you know, all the safety rails and stuff for the elderly. <laughs> and that's how it started. And then the next 10 years was us walking out of AA. And rebuilding that house. And rebuilding that house and building and the freedom people. model. Yeah, we helped. It they was, just started taking, yeah. people, like people came to them. It wasn't like, it wasn't, there was no advertising. There no. was no, it was like they would go, you stop what you're doing every day and you go to a meeting. Not, not like to find people as much to just spread the word that, did you know you could be okay? Yeah. So we were conflicted because there was all this old folklore, AA historical stuff that we were reading and studying deeply, deeply. Yeah. And, you know, going to the archives in New York and doing all this, these road trips and interviewing people and contacting the people in Hawaii that were founders and going to the McPike farm, which is where Ebby Thatcher was. And, you know, Bill Wilson's, I mean, we did all this. We drove 
all over the Northeast. And, and this was over a period of years. And, and what we found is that we were following ideas that Bill Wilson had come up with that were complete fabrications. Yes. And, and I was wondering why it was so difficult and, and why it was such a failure half the time. And so I started letting my instincts take over and I was like, this is fucking bullshit. All of this, you know, once I started to learn that it was nonsense and that it was a cult, but I really didn't fully get it yet, yeah. you know? And then you came back in the middle of that. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I was kind of, I, I was always there to help the women. That was what yeah. I like. Yeah, we needed that. Yeah. Now I had been kind of a heretic in the group because Bob and I hooked up. And, and back, you know, back in the day in AA, I mean, I was only in, in AA like a couple months when, honestly, weeks when Bob and I hooked up. And so I was, that was, that was bad. I was shunned for a period of time. So I was, but I was always around. I was always kind of hanging around and I was always helping the women and, um, while trying to build my, my career on my own and finish school and, um, but I, I was always drawn to helping people, not because I believed that I needed to do that. I mean, that was that was kind of a, even through all this as we've been learning, there was a little bit of a strange dichotomy because I knew I don't need to be here to be okay, and and as a matter of fact, being around all of this was a hell of a lot more stressful than just moving on with my life. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and so yeah. because a lot of people will say that to us now, they'll be like. Why do you keep doing what you're doing if you don't need to do it? Well, because we know things that other people don't. Yeah, we were figuring it out. You know, we've done things other people haven't. And so, yeah, I came back in and right, right when they opened the retreat and I can remember you or dad, maybe dad called me when the first woman came to the retreat. Yep. And I. Yep. Um. I think, yeah, I think dad called me and he was like, yeah, this, we've got this woman coming in tonight. We need you to yep. come to yep. the retreat. Yep. And I was like, well, okay. And at the time, I think I still lived 30 miles away, which was fine. Um, and so, yeah, I remember driving to the retreat that night and hanging out for a really long time. And, and then I was kind of just back in the, like back in there, there every night again, you yep. know, and, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. It was definitely an adventure because we were we were really doing something that nobody had ever done before, yeah. and and we were so mixed up. But uh, it was about so we we were in that sort of mixed up, messy in the middle. <clears throat> yeah, in the middle uh, until about ninety five, ninety six. I met my wife. Uh, we became friends for about four years. We're still Jeremy, Michelle, and there were others at this point. There yeah, were other there people. were a lot of other people that were part of this. Yep, and a lot of stories. And we, Jer, actually adopted some some people that basically their parents would drop them off, young people, yeah, young, and then just not pick them up again. So yep. Jer actually made them uh, Browns, right? Yeah, part of the family. Yeah, yeah. So that 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 happened. Which was weird, but, but, you know, it wasn't weird to a certain extent to me because growing up in the cult of AA, there was a lot of weirdness like that. So it didn't feel yeah. for both Mark and I, it didn't feel like it was weird. Right. I had transient people in and out of our house all the time. All the time. So there was a lot of that flavoring, but you have to understand we were really good at showing people that they could move on. Yes. We didn't and, want them to stay forever. Yeah. And, and now there were times where our research would lose, we would lose our way and, and we would, we would say this statistic works. And then we would find out later, no, it didn't quite. And time would bear all that out. The other thing that bared out the truth, and that is what the freedom model is, right? That you're free to move on with your life and that addiction doesn't exist. It's a construct and compelled use doesn't exist. All these things that we can say with certainty now, None of that was certain to us. It was all new ideas and being counteracted by angry AA people. Meanwhile, mm. there was um, the state came after us to try and shut us down. We, I was in a lawsuit with them for years and years and years. Um, the local government came after us in two separate lawsuits. Uh, the police would stop us and harass us for shit. Ten years that went on. Yep. Um, just constant pressure 
constant pressure to be run out of town. And luckily I grew up in conflict and none of it totally freaked me out. I was like, basically, fuck you. I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm helping people. Yeah. And, and I think that when the state and everybody figured out, wow, these people, there's nothing nefarious going on. No, they're, 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 they're doing something really remarkable and everybody kind of backed off and became, well, you a, know what, you know what happened advocate. to in that little town? Um, the little town didn't want us and they were afraid. Yeah. And, and one of the things that Mark did so well, my father, not so much. My father liked to fight and he was looking for a fight most of the time, but Mark wasn't. And wherever this came from, I mean, part of this was my dad too. One of the, we wanted to leave the town better than we found it. Yeah. And that was always our goal. And that little town was the place to get heroin in our little community. That was known as the place to get drugs. Literally next door. Next I had a, door. I had a retreat. A, a, yeah. A drug house. And I was like, fuck, you know, do I really have to deal with this? But and I that did. was the irony of it is they didn't want us there. Yeah. Yet right next door was a well-known drug dealer. So it, who clearly had a little bit of protection going on. Um, well, that we ended up getting that house at auction and tearing it down. Um, and, and so that little town doesn't have that problem anymore. Yeah. Yeah. We cleaned up the town and it was rough, man. We, I, there are a couple of times we had fights out in the street. Yeah. Um, a lot of cop cars, a cop car went in the river downtown. I mean, it, it was great. There was, <laughs> I, I, Oh my God. If there was a, there needs could, to be there, this needs to be a Netflix series. I'm just saying if anybody's I, interested, um, we can do it. I have all series. the newspaper clippings. Literally at one point we were, there was like eight of us out in the street fighting the locals. Oh my du gosh. Duking yeah. it out. It was totally insane. It, it was insane. It was. <laughs> but it was, but to me, it wasn't any different than what I was doing growing up, except for I really, and Jerry too, I couldn't have done it without Jerry and Michelle. I couldn't have. Um, I really wanted, I care about people. I didn't want yeah. people to go to rehab nope. and come out and put a gun in their mouth like I did. I didn't want people to feel hopeless that they were going to be in recovery the rest of their lives and struggle horribly yeah. and, and be deprived and feel deprived of what they wanted and all that horrible stuff that AA tells you you're going to have to live like this sort of subculture of failure and, and doomsaying. And I knew that that wasn't real. I yeah. somehow I intuitively knew that. And, and, and so did Jer and so did, and then there were other people, like I said, that, that joined in, met my wife. But you were going to say I, I wanted I wanted to say something to the people that were with us in the early years, and um, I mean, Mark and I were kind of the the sponsors. Like we we sponsored a ton of people, hundreds. him, men, me, women, and hundreds. And our hearts were always in the right place. We didn't always get it right. We often yeah. didn't get it right. Mm -hmm. And and but one of the things that was because our hearts were in the right place and because we were open, we were always open to learning. Your dad instilled research. He did. He's, Let's yeah. look at the data. Let's look at the data. And, and, and I'm, so I want to apologize first of all, to anybody in those early years that yeah. maybe, you know, we were stuck where we see a lot of people in our group stuck right in between those two worlds of, you know, the recovery world, which which is designed to keep you fearful and there, okay? That's what it's designed to do. And then this other world out here that's like, no, you're okay and you can be free. And so we were stuck in the middle there for, gosh, a decade easily, um, maybe a little bit longer for me because I was a little bit slower, a little bit more fearful, um, you know? And so I just want to say, you, the people in the early years, thank you because, because without you, none of this would be here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't think you can do anything with social change to the degree that AA is such a deep abiding cult Yes, and, and have it be a smooth process because you're shattering ideas that are, that are so religious in nature. Yeah. And, and my God, is it hard to deal with? So we got to the end of that first 12 years and I got married 
Uh, Ryan showed up. Yeah, you, you all know Ryan. He's he's the the sort of Oz behind the curtain. And Stephen, and then, and then Stephen, Stephen showed, showed up, up shortly after Ryan. Yep. Actually, Ryan's first day here was at my wedding. I got married, and I, I remember. And and I didn't have any staff on duty, so I brought the retreat to my wedding. Yes, he did. <laughs> like the guests came yeah. to his wedding. Yeah, because I didn't have any. But it was such an them. entrenched part of our lives. Yeah. Um. That uh. That it was. It, it was okay. Like these, he lived with these people. So, yeah. so at that point we lived in the apartment next door. We had bought a bunch of apartments and we were doing continuing education. We were figuring out those parts. Michelle ran that. Then the family program developed. And then we were, we, we got rid of the meeting structure. Um, we had meetings, we were in AA, then we were in, we created the young guns. Then we created old fashioned AA, which was really a mistake. Um, and then it morphed into what we called the fellowship, which was, was like our own little cult thing going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's where at the end of right around 2000, we nixed every 2002. Oh, I'm going to tell it? you what happened. Exactly. This is, yeah. I came to, to actually work full time for the company in 2002 and I actually work there in August. I was, I went from, I was a volunteer all that time. And then, I, cause I had been a stay at home mom for a little while. And then I decided I would work there. And um, once my son was going to school, my youngest son. And so, so I'd been working there from like the summer of 2002 and we had the, not the, and the fellowship was done by then we, we had, but we had people that would stay on as we had a volunteer program. Mm -hmm. So they'd come to the retreat. And then um, we had all these other buildings that we owned right in the, the little town of Hageman, little village. And they had renovated them and made them apartments. So people were living there, going to meetings at night together at the retreat. And then it was Christmas Eve. Yep. It was Christmas Eve, 2002. <laughs> and my father did, had done a white paper that showed that the people right. that had uh, – come to the retreat and left and gone home and got on with their lives, did better, did twice as good as the people that stuck around and stayed in the bubble. Right. The fear bubble. Yep. Yes. Yeah. And we, we were engendering fear. We were creating a problem. Like people, like somehow yeah. people needed to stay for support. Right. Yeah. And, and it was tragic. It was tragic that people felt they needed that. And my father wrote that paper and he said, you're going to announce at this meeting. I don't think it was Christmas Eve. I think it was right before Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. It was no, right it was, around. It was Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve. It was Christmas Eve. It was so, that day. Yeah. So we, so I had to, we all went to the meeting but that he, night and we announced that this is done. But, but, Go what, home. but what happened was he said, I said to Jer and Michelle said to Jer, we met him and we said, let's do this after the new year's. Let's get through the holidays. Yeah. Jer goes, okay. And so we do the meeting that night and, and we did still have meetings. It was the meeting. And he said, we're disbanding the meetings and yeah, we're done. Everybody's going to go home because it's better for you to just go home and get on with your lives. Holy and shit. And we were like, <laughs> and everybody was like pissed. People were pissed. And it was, but we, he did say, if you need to stay longer, we're going to create a program for that, which was news to us because we were like, what, what the hell is he even talking about? And then all, all of a sudden, myself and one other dude, Mark was like, you guys are going to make that program. Yeah. And they have like a week to do it. And, but that's the way Jer did things. Like yeah. Jer was fearless. Yeah. 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 He had absolutely zero fear when it came to managing situations. Uh, he had absolute balls to, to, to do these things. And it, you know what? It changed everything. And, and the people that went home did better. Yes. Um, the people that needed to stay on, we had a, an actual program for them. We called it continuing education. That's where the whole morph away from AA, that was the final piece where we changed from a support 12 step even the vestiges of it to education, to actual to, education, yeah, to presenters and and that's where the freedom model matured, where, yes. where we were like, and that was the day I also realized the book that we had that had still its roots in AA's book had to go, had to go. And I started writing the very first freedom model and 
that was scary to me because and then and then in the middle of writing that i realized there's nothing to be scared of i know more than anybody i know about addiction like i know more having walked through that cult what it does is it's it became a part of my dna i Mm. i lived through the experience of deconstructing the entire treatment model from state level lawsuits and, and how they, and AA, we sued AA at one point because they came after us and said some really awful things in print about me and Jared that were lies, slanderous stuff. So we went after them. Um, and there, I went through that whole process. I was one of the first people ever to sue AA incorporated world services incorporated. And then, so all of that happened and it was, it was wonderful. It was horrible to go through. Mm. It was the most stressful, traumatic shit you can imagine. Your lives are destroyed by these people. They tried to destroy me, but I didn't have anything. So what was interesting was in a way, I think fate created a scenario where I was penniless. We didn't make a single paycheck for that 12 years. And so there was nothing to gain for everybody that came after us because there was no money, no assets. I mean, we had a building that was, we were renovating for 12 years. Right. Um, but we didn't own it. We yeah. still, we still were, were just barely making payments. Right. And so it was, it was just a wild time, but then all that was over with, like the paradigm shift had happened. And then right after that, I said, we're going to make the first. And I said the words non 12 step. I created the term non 12 step, which did. is now a huge category that they've and bastardized. The other thing you did, but he did this in the late nineties was this internet thing, right? Oh yeah. He like created the first, he worked with somebody who had a loved one that had come through the retreat. And that person said, I can build you a website. Yeah. What's a website. (laughs) Right. And I built the first one with Michelle, which was in Microsoft publisher. And it was like a a Navy blue and yellow lettering website. Oh, it's such I loved it. It's the very first one. I wonder if we could find it in the cache. Probably in the archives, But, but it's, it literally was block lettering, a blue background. It looks terrible. Um, and that started getting us people from different yes. states and, and people getting into this intranet thing. Yeah. Right. Like, what the heck is that? Yeah. And then when and- I built the first official one and I, I copied the wallpaper in one of the Victorian rooms, made a picture of the Victorian yeah, house. That was, it was a pretty website. He's, he's got a good eye for art. And then I, I created a reservations thing like a hotel and we filled up. Yes. And then I got my first paycheck. And then from there, we built another retreat and then another retreat. And that was the next 20 years of just fine tuning. And that and is when you, that's why it made me think of it. It's like, we're non 12 step, yeah. a non 12 step program. And when nobody even knew what that meant, yep. you know, and yep. um, now of course everybody calls themselves non 12 step. And then before you know it, you're going to meetings when you go there, just saying. Yeah. yeah. They bastardized it. <laughs> yeah. it. It's meaningless now. But at the time I created the first alternative to treatment in the world right. and I fought in court and I won to be the first alternative. We're still yeah. grandfathered in as not a treatment model. Cause I don't treat anybody. We don't, <laughs> you we, know? Don't. we give you information. <laughs> yeah. My no- gosh, we could go on and on. And, um, but I think you've got a good, good idea of how this all began and um we'll have to do another one of these yeah well let's let's i do want to say i want to get to the to to the end because i think there are people that don't know the end and the end was uh stephen slate came back he had gone back down to new york he came back and there were a lot of other people that influenced me at this point um, Stanton Peel was involved at one point. Um, we, we became friends and Zach Rhodes eventually and Monica Richardson, Dr. Joy Brown, Dr. Joy Brown was a huge advocate when nobody else was. And yep. she did our first audio book. Yes. She's since passed on, which is sad to me. She was awesome because, and, and then there was a fella that I think I need to give credit to, uh, that acted like my dad and, and it was a good friend's father, Len Etter. Yes, um, and he funded us in the he early did. years when there was no nobody, nobody on the horizon that would help us in those beginning years. Um, and he took it upon himself. He's since passed on as well. Uh, but it meant the world to me to have those people because I felt, I know Michelle felt this way. I know I certainly know Jer felt this way because he was fighting the legal battles with Ryan, um, and they were dealing with a lot of that stuff. But when you have advocates 
in those years. You never forget those people. I mean, they will be a part of your being because boy, it's nice to have some friends when the world is against you and, and the dogs are at your heels and I'm not shitting you. It was at one point me and Jared lived on the back porch with no heat, no nothing because we gave it was snowing on them. Yeah, it was snowing. We had no windows. And if it was zero out, we were out there in zero degrees. And my aunt, my old 81 year old aunt would be out there with an electric blanket sleeping out there with us when she, she would a, visit. She is such a tough woman. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it, it was, but we needed the, the rooms for the guests. So we gave yeah. them the best rooms because we were constantly renovating. So there wasn't that much room. So we had to give them the good rooms. We'd be renovating and we lived on that porch for eight years. We had, we had a room when I, when I was director, I was director for a couple of years or no, not even that long, like six, eight months I was director and an interim director of the retreat. And they had just built this room next to the, my office. My office was on that porch, but it, it had been renovated enough um, to where it wasn't freezing cold, but they had renovated this room and it was the nicest room in the house. And the guests called it the Hilton. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Some of you and may we remember like, that. I would be like, can we not call it that? It's making the other guests feel like they're in crappy rooms, <laughs> but it was really nice. Room. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the amount of construction we did, we eventually oh my gosh, t- took continuous. over a, a huge hotel up in Wells, Wells New, York. New York. Yeah. And then was... we, and then we built from the ground up, me and Bob built the, the executive retreat. We've since gotten rid of all the retreats because we realized that you don't need them and you want to work with people in real time. And then we obviously, Stephen, me and Michelle published the freedom model. So then we, we stopped that company and started a new company, the freedom model where we realized we had the answer, we could teach it, we had beta tested it. And, and we could reach so many more people. That's right. Worldwide. I mean, that's the goal. Our goal really is to work ourselves out of a job. We want people to know they can be free. And that, that's the irony um, when our, when like the, the AA people and the naysayers talk online about us, um, they're like, they're like, you know, you're just trying to sell a book. Blah, blah. No, we, we were just trying to give away the book. We're trying to give away the information. Of course, we have services where we can work one-on-one with people and help yeah, that, them. And that requires labor, which costs money. Of course. I mean, we have to make money. Exactly. Um, but but it's but our goal isn't to, I mean, it's so ironic. The treatment industry is is goal is to create lifelong customers. Yeah, yeah, to just rip you off and and with fear. Yeah. And no, we want you to solve your problem and move on. Like we have, um, we're free. We don't do anything to maintain abstinence or recovery or to like, it's, it's a non-issue in our lives. That's right. And we want that for you because it's pretty goddamn awesome. It is. So, so listen, if you want to have the short version of this with some research, so you can see what our, our programs are actually like, go to our masterclass. Yes. We're going to have one. Plug that at the beginning. We were so excited to start this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, go to our masterclass. It's weekly. You just go to the freedommodel.org, the freedommodel.org. It's right here on the thing. Um, or hit the QR code. If you're on a PC right here, Yeah, you can see it on the screen. Um, and then join and it's an hour it's recorded. So if you can't make the event time, the live time, you can watch it at your leisure. Also, we have coaching. Um, we coach people all over the world and we've done that for, I don't know, over a decade now. And we also have our complete addiction uh, solution program. We call it CASP, C-A-S-P. Um, and we're going to fly in and you spend a few days with us and we take you through the entire curriculum and then you work with us afterwards um, through the online program where you get to talk with us once a month for two hours. Um, and, and also you'll have additional three additional, uh, private instruction sessions, which usually are about 90 minutes each private instruction coaching. We call them coaching. We've called it different things over the, over the years, but you'll work one-on-one with one of us, um, as you're, you're applying what you're learning at home. That's right. So, um, and we have coaches. Uh, so if you do coaching, we have several coaches now. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's different options. You don't have to struggle. No. There's no, and it's very affordable. All our models are very affordable for what you're getting. It's, it's a fraction of what you're going to end up spending at treatment to be told your disease for the rest of right, your life. To and become screwed. a lifelong customer yeah. there. Right. 
No, it's, it's unnecessary. You can have a great life. You can have the life you want, believe it or not. You really can. So come to the masterclass. We'll explain everything to you. All right. Thanks, All right. everybody. Thanks for watching and listening. Are you struggling with a drug or alcohol problem, but you don't want to go to rehab or group meetings? That's why we created the non-12-step Freedom Model Coaching Program in 2011. Through video conferencing on Zoom or Skype, you can work privately with a certified Freedom Model Coach from your home or office on your schedule. And here's the best part. With the Freedom Model, you'll never be labeled an addict or an alcoholic, and we won't tell you to go to 12-step meetings or hamper your life with endless recovery rituals. Instead, you can learn exactly why addiction isn't a disease and how you can solve the problem for good and move on with your life. Do you want to be completely free from your addiction? Do you want to never have to attend meetings, rehabs, or addiction counseling ever again? And do you want to solve your problem from the comfort of home? Then call us at 888-424-2626 to talk with a Freedom Model coach today and experience the Freedom Model difference.